The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm your host, Vinny Politan, back with another podcast edition of the Court TV original production, Someone They Knew, with Tamron Hall. This week's episode is entitled Home Alone, and it chronicles the mystery surrounding the death of Ramona Croteen, whose body was found in the trunk of her car after a night out drinking with friends. Given the fact she seemingly was out late and driving home alone, and also that she had a large amount of cash on her at the time, it was natural for the police to assume she had been killed by a robber. But as they began to investigate the circumstances of her life, they noticed some odd behavior from one of the people closest to her. Behavior that made investigators come up with a new theory of what happened to Ramona, one far more sinister. Here, featuring interviews with Cleveland, Ohio journalist James Renner, private investigator Chris Giannani, attorney Lester Potash, and forensic analyst Melissa Fernandez, is someone they knew with Tamron Hall, home alone. This is the Court TV Podcast. Walked around to the back of the car, then I found her. My sister laying there, she's curled up. At first, Ramona's murder looks like a burglary gone wrong. We know the gunshot occurred in the vehicle. There are a bunch of dots, but they didn't connect anywhere. They just raised suspicion. of Ramona Croteen was so notorious that one local journalist dubbed it the O.J. Simpson case of Northeast Ohio. Two decades later, people are still talking about it, still debating alternate theories, still wondering if justice was ever served. Cleveland, the name means cleave, cut in two. And we're split right down the middle with the Cuyahoga River the west side of Cleveland's a small community, made up of small communities. Jeff and Ramona's house is a four-bedroom colonial on a uh, residential street in the southern part of Parma. Parma is known as a middle-class suburb, and there was nothing unusual about it. Great neighbors, you know, up and down the street. Jeff Croteen was a very successful local businessman. He was in charge of a state farm insurance office. He kind of built it from the ground floor up to the point where he was making over $300,000 a year. Ramona Croteen, he had known since they were kids. Nobody had a bad thing to say about Ramona Croteen. She was just this, this nice mother of three children. Nobody ever mentioned a word that they had any kind of problems in their marriage, not a word. No arguments, no domestics, no calls to the house by the police, nothing. Ramona worked at the IX Center, which was this big convention center near the airport. Every year, the IX puts on a, a sportsman show. It lasts almost two weeks. It's one of the biggest shows that comes into Cleveland. They have everything, hunting, fishing, tours, anything to do with hunting and fishing and sports, it's in there. Ramona would work at this booth called Riba Fudge, and she would sell the fudge for this company for their conventions. 
She had spent a day selling fudge. It's mostly a cash business. Every night that she would take the money that was collected and she would prepare it for deposit for the next morning. I believe that Ramona had probably somewhere around four to $5,000 cash at the end of that night. She was working at the IX Center and her and a few other of the exhibitors got together for a party at the Clarion Hotel in Middleburg Heights, not too far away. She had that money when she went to the party. It was in her car. A lot of people knew that most of these exhibitors would take their cash because they didn't have time to go to the bank after the show. A lot of people remember seeing Ramona at the party. She had a lot of friends. When it's business time at business, but then later, oh, she would dance, dance all the time. And she laughed all the time. She's a very pleasant person to be around. People loved her. Ramona Crotine was seen dancing and, and partying till about 2.30 a.m. Well, it was closing time. They quit serving the alcohol. We hugged and, you know, said goodbye, see you next time, you know, next year. And she walked out to the parking lot. And that's the last I seen her. One of Jeff and Ramona's children, uh, their daughter, Jennifer, woke up that morning and found her father uh, in the kitchen making breakfast. And he seemed to be annoyed that Ramona had not come home the night before. Jeff felt that Ramona may have stayed at a girlfriend's, may have, I, I'm not saying that she may have drunk too much or may have partied too hard or whatever, but it was not a concern at that time because there, there was no reason for him to be concerned. But then as time went on and nobody heard from her, then her children started becoming more and more concerned. So Greg, Ramona's brother, he can't find his sister. He's got a bad feeling about this. And he goes in search of his sister and starts driving around. Greg finds Ramona's car in the parking lot at a rapid station. That's our mass transit. So what I did was I pulled up in my van next to the car on the right-hand side to take a look in the car. Maybe I could recognize something. I get out of my truck and I take a look at the car. I knew it had to be her car. I went to the back of the van, dug into my plumbing box, and got a pipe wrench. I had to swing the pipe wrench four or five times to get the window to break. Well, it went flying into the car. I reached down and grabbed all the levers by the driver's side, pulled them up to see if maybe my sister was tied up in the trunk. Walked around to the back of the car, then I found her. My sister laying there, she's curled up, then I felt her to make sure she wasn't warm. She was very, very cold. When I arrived at the scene, other officers were starting to string a yellow tape line. I observed the body of a female in the trunk of the car. As we looked around the car, I looked down and I saw there was a spot of blood under the rear passenger seat. I walked over to the front of the car and we just felt the grill for any heat or anything like that. See if the car had been there long and see if there was any indication that it had just arrived there. There was uh, no heat coming from the front. I spoke with the county coroner's office and we advised that do not touch the body, move it or anything like that, that we would flatbed the car there with the body in it. It was placed inside in the bay at the coroner's office. To take the body back in the vehicle to a laboratory setting is really a great way to preserve evidence and make sure that things are handled in the proper way. Ramona's murder looks like a burglary gone wrong. She had this $4,000 in cash with her. And did somebody else know about this and try to take it from her? There was a, a fight, it escalated to murder. That's what it seemed like at first. 
but Ramona's credit cards and checkbook were not taken. One thing that was missing was her keys. If this was a robbery, who would take the time to take the keys after they ditched the car? That's just a piece of evidence that's gonna tie you to the crime scene. On Ramona Croteen's body, the medical examiner reported that she had seven lacerations to the left side of her head. There was an entrance wound on her neck from a bullet, and the exit was above the left ear towards the back of her head. The medical examiner said that either would be the cause of death. She had blunt force trauma to her head, and then she was subsequently shot. So although Ramona Croteen was found in her trunk, the trajectory of the bullet went into the passenger rear seat and was located underneath the padding. And you would have to then match that defect in the seat with the trajectory within Ramona Croteen's head. I did not see any evidence in the photographs that blunt force trauma happened within the vehicle. Then you move backwards and say, well, where did that begin? Ramona Croteen was found in the trunk of her car, bludgeoned and shot to death. Police were investigating the possibility of a robbery gone wrong, but they also had to look at the people close to Ramona including her husband, Jeff. They interviewed him less than three hours after the body was found at 2 a.m. The evaluation will always start with the persons who have the most immediate contact with the victim and those who have the most emotional interaction with the victim. And so you have to include them as a possible suspect until you have sufficient evidence to exclude them. Now oh, let's get this done. I want to go home. <laughs> that first interview, it's just sadness. Sadness like, oh, woe is me. Sadness for Jeff. When did you start noticing that my daughter called? Something, something was not right. Oh, I woke up and she wasn't there. On Friday? Yes. About what time did you wake up? About 6, 6.30. And then what? Jen woke up, I told her that I, her mom didn't come home yet, and uh, uh, to call me when uh, she gets home. About well, what time was this when you left? About 10, somewhere between 10 and 10.30. He's not asking questions about his wife. He's not asking what happened. He's not asking how we get to who killed her. Jen said she still didn't hear from mom. Jeff was uh, somewhat of a stoic individual. He was not one to express a great deal of emotion. That doesn't mean he wasn't concerned or that it didn't affect him. She was helpful. Yes. I don't know. No, I don't know. No, she didn't have her. She doesn't have he needed to be in complete control of any conversation he was in. So he was controlling the interview as much as he could. How did you get home? 5.30 to 6 o'clock. What were you thinking like this time? I was hoping 
and she would walk in the door so I could yell at her. I believe he was not concerned about uh, her welfare or her whereabouts. He was more of offended by the fact that she chose to stay out all night. Jeff was in, in terrible physical condition. Jeff had heart problems. I know that he had a lot of medical visits and appointments. Let's uh, wrap this up. Yeah, yeah, we'll be done in like 10 seconds here. If Jeff had done this and he had driven Ramona's car to the RTA rapid station, how did he get home? Jeff could not have walked probably down the street on, on, from his house to the stop sign. The evidence uh, revealed that that car had to have been parked in the early morning hours as far as the parking patterns. I mean, we don't have videotape of the parking lot. We don't have, you know, GPS or any of those items of evidence that would exist today. If somebody dropped a car off, we felt they had to get out of there somehow. I initiated contacting all the cab companies in our area that respond there. I would ask them if they had any uh, any runs into the RTA, Brook Park Road area, back to the Clarion, back to Parma, back to anywhere. Nobody had any runs in that time. There was no uh, drop-offs or pickups in the area. Even if he did everything, somebody still has to get him from that rapid station back home. He didn't walk too far to walk. He didn't take a cab. This was before Uber, you know? So somebody, if he's involved, brought him home. So who was that person? It could have been either that Jeff did get a ride, which was highly unlikely because he was really not a social person. He didn't have a whole lot of friends or he just didn't do it. I absolutely believe that the only way that this works is that Jeff Croteen had an accomplice. The police thought that Jeff Croteen's accomplice was the woman he was having an affair with, but they could never prove that. Now, I don't think she had anything to do with that part of it. The anonymous call came to the police indicating that Mr. Croteen was involved with somebody that he worked with. Of course, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a motive for murder, but it's certainly evidence of a strained marriage if you're involved in a relationship with somebody other than your spouse. The police were continuing to investigate the case, and part of their investigation would be continued surveillance of the protein home. I drove by, I noticed there was uh, rolls of carpet padding laying on the front lawn and a roll of carpet in the driveway. Well, that was brand new carpeting, or it appeared to be brand new. It was on rolls. It still hadn't been unrolled yet. And they're like, oh, that's strange. He's putting in new carpet. I set up a surveillance to see if they were gonna throw out the old carpet. I learned that the carpet was taken to a dumpster behind Buddy's carpet on Northfield Road. When I opened the dumpster, there was a uh, carpet inside. The carpet was recovered and I took it to BCI to look for any type of evidence on the carpet. He went over with uh, some lighting equipment and he found four spots. He field tested these spots for human blood and he told me they were positive. On the carpet is some blood from Ramona Croteen. And suddenly, this is a staged crime scene, and we have to take a look at the husband. 
Jeff and Ramona's daughter, Jennifer, was home. She was taking a break from college and she was sleeping in bed. It was 11 feet from her parents' bedroom. The daughter didn't remember her mom coming home. And had she come home and there was this vicious fight, she would have heard it and would have woken up. There's a blood spatter on her Ramona Crotein socks that she was wearing, and then the shoes were put over the socks so that the blood was covered by the shoe, clearly inconsistent with her wearing the shoes at the time the attack took place. And then you have to ask yourself, well, why would anybody go to the trouble of after killing Ramona Crotein, go and put tennis shoes on her? Using that type of reason and common sense in evaluating the evidence and looking at the sequence of how death came to Ramona Crotein, I believe all shows that this took place in her bedroom. What are you doing ripping out carpet after your wife was murdered? The headboard to the bedroom set had been removed by burning it in the fireplace. Why a grieving husband would go through this process. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. Two months after the murder of Ramona Crotine, police obtained a search warrant for the home she shared with her husband, Jeff. What investigators discovered convinced them they had the right suspect, but at the same time, it also made it challenging to prove their case in court. There had been a lot of alterations to the bedroom. What they found in the bedroom was that it had been redecorated, repainted, so that the carpet had been changed out basically gave some concern as to why a grieving husband would go through this process following the death of his wife to, you know, remove everything that was in that one room. The police go to Jeffrey Croce and they're like, hey, what are you doing ripping out carpet out of your bedroom after your wife was, was murdered? And he's like, oh, you know, I, it, it, was, it was too sentimental. It was too connected to her and I had to have a fresh start. So I painted the walls yellow. They also found that the headboard to the bedroom set had been removed. And then how he chose to dispose of the removal of the headboard by burning it in the fireplace. The burning of the headboard as some sort of suspicious act. I know that sometimes people grieve differently. I can't explain the headboard, you know, but Jeff is just weird enough to be the type of guy who loses his wife and then just wants to reset. Even though it makes him look so guilty, he's still gonna do it because he doesn't care. He paid a pretty good uh, sum of money for the cleaning services. Hire serve pro the cleaning service to go through the process of cleaning the entire house. Something will remain always. In this case, once the bedroom was processed, there were small areas of blood spatter that were located on the bedroom door. I believe that the blood spatter belonging to Ramona Crotein certainly indicates that there was a level of violence that was perpetrated in the room in order to produce those small particles of blood. It was a so what? It was a dot, nothing connected. If the door were closed to the bedroom when this assault took place, there would have been blood all over the place. If the door were open, when the assault took place, there would have been blood in the hallway and elsewhere. None of that existed. All of the evidence within this case 
points to an event happening in the bedroom, there needing to be a reason to change the carpet, the paint, the destruction of the headboard. And then throughout the house, you see little pieces of blood evidence. So the sequence of events in Ramona Croteen's death certainly could be starting in the bedroom, moving to the garage, and then ending in the vehicle. The fact there was some trace blood in the kitchen doesn't necessarily mean that the fight took place in the bedroom and ran into the kitchen. Again, there would have been greater evidence of blood spatter all over the place, which there wasn't. The search of Jeff Croteen's office is the location of a, a firearm, a handgun, and that, that handgun is then subsequently tested with the bullet that was removed from Ramona Croteen's body. The scientific testing that was done on it, it appeared to be consistent, but it was not conclusive at that point in time as far as the science of ballistics, that we could not make a positive identification that that, in fact, was the murder weapon. The experts said, yeah, it could have been fired from this gun. But when you asked him, could have been fired from any other gun, he listed a boatload of different guns that worked. The computer forensics revealed he was shopping for a, uh, a mattress cover while his wife was missing. A very, very peculiar kind of conduct, especially since you think that he would be the leader of the search party out there looking high and low for his missing wife. They arrested Jeff about a year after the murder. I believe that what occurred that night was that Ramona Croteen came home had been in the uh, bedroom. I believe that an argument or some sort of conflict occurred between her and her husband that escalated into a violence, blunt force trauma. I think he was angry about something, bashed her head against the bedboard, then took her out wrapped in sheets to the car, placed her in the back of the car, and at some point either in the garage or at the RTA station, uses his weapon to shoot her. I believe that then Mr. Croteen took the body, put it into the trunk of her car, drove the car in the early morning hours over to the RTA station close to the airport, parked the car there, made his way back home, and then was there in the morning with a angry disposition concerning the whereabouts of his wife. There are a bunch of dots, the mattress cover, the affair, the claimed aloofness, going about his business, all of these other dots, but they didn't connect anywhere. They just raised suspicions. Our position relating to the events of that evening was that Ramona never came home and she was most likely the victim of a robbery that went south. Jeff Croteen was charged with first-degree murder for killing his wife, Ramona, but he was also charged with tampering with evidence. A central question for the jury was whether Jeff Croteen's total remodeling of his bedroom was an extreme attempt to sanitize a bloody crime scene or just an eccentric man's strange way of grieving. One of the charges over and above the charge of murder is the charge of tampering with evidence. And you'll find, as I review the evidence, the defendant engages in a calculated destruction of a crime scene, and a calculated destruction of evidence throughout the course of this investigation. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to find that the defendant's actions speak the words guilty of murder. Thank you. People 
lose a loved one, they close the door of that room and they never go in it again. People who lose a loved one and they take everything that person owns and say, I want it out of here, I don't want to deal with it. There's a lot of different ways people deal with death. And Jeff Protein's choice, the choice that he made, has got him indicted for murder. There are so many suspects, and the person that did this, the real person that did this, is still out there. And it's not that man. I have never been subject to a situation such as that, so I cannot say what the expected uh, emotional response would be. Different people react differently to different news, and we just accepted it, that this is how he took that unfortunate information. As the investigation continued, did there come a time where you went to the Croteen residence to meet with the, the family and Mr. Croteen? Yes, sir. March the 29th, which was a Saturday, 2003. Shortly after the news of Ramona's death, there were police persons. They were in and out of the house. And this is before any sort of supposed cleaning of the house occurred. Does there come a time that you go up to the defendant's bedroom with Jennifer Croteen? Yes. When you went up and into the bedroom, did you make an examination of the jewelry box uh, belonging to Ramona Croteen? I was standing near it. Jennifer had it open. While you're up there with Jennifer, does anything happen? Uh, I was upstairs with Jennifer probably about not even seven, eight minutes, and uh, Jeff Croteen arrived upstairs in the bedroom. He just wanted to know what we were doing, and I explained that we were just looking around and looking to, for anything that would help us with Mona. And what was his response? He stated that this was his and Mona's room and that I would have to leave. At no time did anybody from law enforcement notice spattered blood, stains somewhere. Jeff did a lot of things that, that would have brought suspicion on him. Things like calling a company to come in and clean the house. And ma'am, by whom are you employed? I used to work for Serpro. So you, were, um, you would go in as an employee of Serpro to clean whatever premise that you were assigned to? Yeah. What kind of stains were you accustomed to removing? Um, we had different chemicals for different stains. We had stuff for coffee. We had stuff for like pet urine or for blood stains. The cleaning service. Like water stains. I mean, they are uh, specialized services that do everything from storm damages to crime scenes. So, you know, that again raises questions. Let's turn our attention then to May of 2003. When you initially met this Mr. Crote, mm -hmm. did he take you to where you were supposed to clean? He said we were to start upstairs. Starting with the master bedroom, were you given specific instructions of what to clean in the master bedroom? We were supposed to do everything between the ceiling and the floor, and he kept saying how the doors weren't clean enough for him. And I used all the chemicals I had at the time to clean the doors, and the doors were clean. I couldn't get any, any cleaner than what I already did. I think you talked about he was complaining because he wanted the doors to shine. Yes, I did. You weren't real happy about that, right? No. Okay, But as you're working on the door, you're looking at the door, right? And you've cleaned it several times and you viewed it. Just as you worked on the ceiling, just as you worked on the walls for several hours, I think up to six hours? Yes. Mm -hmm. And did you ever see any blood in that room? No, I did not. Did you ever see any tissue or fiber? No, I did not. 
And you were working really close in, weren't you? Yes, I was. Thank you. I think that the strategy was to focus more upon the science, highlight the blood spatter, to educate the jury on the science of blood spatter analysis. You have a DNA match, three specks of blood on the carpeting, garage wall, and also on the inside edge. And again, when you talked about the door before in the master bedroom, just to reiterate that, that wasn't actually on the door. It was on the inside edge of the door, correct? Along the hinge, that edge right there. You found a needle in the haystack. OK, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So those five specs, all those are matches for Mrs. Protein. Yes. OK. Other than that, in that house, you cannot say to a reasonable degree of medical certainty that there's any other matches, correct? No. Jennifer Protein, would you ever betray that love for your mother by walking in this courtroom, sitting on that chair, and lying for your father? For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. Forensic science and DNA evidence were front and center in the trial of Jeff Croteen for the murder of his wife, Ramona. But the trial's emotional core came when two of his children testified. One of those children, Jennifer, was asleep in a room just 11 feet away from the master bedroom where the prosecution alleged Jeff Croteen brutally assaulted his wife. Okay, call your next witness. Stay called Jennifer Croteen. Describe for us your relationship with your father. He wasn't too involved when we were children. All right, when you but say- more so a financial provider than anything else. Jennifer Croteen's testimony was significant in providing a reasonable theory of innocence for Jeff Croteen. She testified that she didn't see her mother come home that night. I wasn't woken up throughout the night because I would have heard something if my mom was murdered in our house. I didn't hear anything. I w went to bed and I woke up and didn't hear one single thing. I would have been woken up. For someone to say that the daughter would not hear, it depends. Does blunt force trauma make a ton of noise? It really depends on the situation. Now, what makes you think you would have been woken up? Her airing, like arguing, maybe. I mean, I would have heard a thump if, you know, if someone was fighting. I would have heard something. I was like right across the hall. But you didn't hear anything, did you? No, I didn't. Jennifer Crotine is, is a very important witness. If we're to believe the, the prosecutor's version of events, her father is in there and is ramming her mother's head into the, the, the bedboard. That would have made a lot of noise. A lot of noise. And Jennifer says she didn't hear that. What happened to your mother's headboard in her bedroom? Um, my dad had burned it, cut it up and burned it. So the day before the funeral. And how did he cut it up? I wasn't exactly up there, sure. I mean, heard noises up there. Wasn't sure what he was doing. Um, smelled the smell, the varnish, and put two, to two, two and two together. Oh, OK, wait a minute. You smelled varnish? Yeah, from the headboard. I, it's, it's some odor. 
I'm not sure if it was varnish. I mean, all right, so some odor from the wood of the headboard. What was being burned in that fireplace? At that time, I found out it was the headboard. Did you think it was strange? I thought it was, like, I wouldn't have done it, but I wasn't sure in the state of mind, like, a person, what they would do after losing, like, their wife. And so, like, my, his wife being murdered, I mean, I just took it as, it's grieving. I, but I pretty much took it as. If you had been awake during that evening, and you heard a very violent, loud argument, and heard thuds and bumps in the night between your father and your mother, what would you have done? Probably grab my hockey stick. <laughs> I would have went out there. I mean, if you I heard it. You wouldn't have stayed it. in your room and cowered, would you? Oh, no, no. Now, during that day of March 21st, did you have occasion to go into the master bedroom of your mother and father? Yes. How soon after you got up did you go in there? Uh, maybe an hour or two. And what did you do when you were in there? Um, did my sit-ups on their floor in front of, to watch, t and watch TV. The next morning, Jennifer was in the area of the bedroom, I think, doing exercises. Had there been evidence of blood somewhere, it would have been observable to her. And on that morning, March 21st, 2003, you walked into your parents' master bedroom. Anything wet on your feet? No. Smell disinfectant? Strong, powerful uh, aroma of detergent? No. How did you find out that your father, Jeff Croteen, had a relationship with another woman? Through Detective Robinson, he told me. Okay. What was your reaction when you heard that? I was angry. And quite honestly, Jennifer, I've noticed since you've been in this courtroom all day long, have you looked at him once? Yes, once or twice. What did you think when you looked at him? That's my dad over there, I mean. Any sense of love or affection for him that's overpowering you? I still love him as, you know, my father, yes. But you can't respect him? No. Will you ever respect him for what he did? No. How much do you love your mother now? I all, as much as I've always loved her. You can never stop loving your mother, correct? Never. Jennifer Croteen, would you ever betray that love for your mother? by walking in this courtroom, sitting on that chair, and lying for your father. Objection. Can I answer? Yes. Oh. I, I, why would I want to live with a mur someone that murdered my mom? Nothing for the judge. You don't live with him, do you, Jennifer? No. Looking at the children's testimony and, and recognizing that they were in a very, very difficult spot. I mean, they had lost their mother that all of them dearly loved, and their father was on trial for a, a murder. The friction that uh, my brother, sister, and I have with my father is due to the affair that he had. We're very upset with that. Other than that, we support my father completely. From my view of it, they were not going to be the person that was going to come in and seal their father's fate by saying that their mother returned home that night. Ladies and gentlemen, there was an argument that ensued that caused this woman to get a tumor-like bump at the top of her head. I submit to you that in and of itself caused her to just keel over, caught off guard, surprised, and then this defendant started beating on her. And he beat on her seven times. It was one 
two, three, four, five, six, seven. Realizing what he has done now, wraps her up in that comforter, takes her downstairs and puts her in the car. And ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that this poor woman was still thrashing about. So what was left to do? He put a bullet in her. Because that would be the only way he could finish her off. Now what's the number one <coughs> issue that the prosecution cannot and have not overcome? Jennifer Croteen is footsteps away from this beating and attempted homicide in the house. She's footsteps away. And they're not denying that. They're not saying to you, oh no, she lied, she wasn't even there. They have to say that she was there. They can't overcome that. As far as we were concerned, there was no evidence that established that Ramona had actually come home that evening. There is absolutely no link to this man. The only science they have that they will tell you is that there are five specks of Ramona Protein's blood in her home that she has lived in for over 17 years. And you heard the experts say, that's not unusual. That's their case. To put him here, to put him in this kind of jeopardy, on this kind of evidence, is incredible. Don't let them do this to this man. It's wrong. The case of Ohio versus Jeffrey Croteen was in the jury's hands. Although the trial had come to an end, it turned out to be just the beginning of an epic legal saga, one that made the murder of Ramona Croteen one of Cleveland's most infamous true crime stories. Okay, please be seated, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. The real moment of truth is when that jury files into the courtroom, uh, judge is there, the room is full with spectators, family members, the accused, where you really feel that you're, you're alive and you're apprehensive and it's a moment of truth. All right, I've received your uh, last communication this morning. The, I will ask the uh, uh, foreperson this question. Is there any possibility that an additional period of time today uh, in which you may reach an agreement? No, Your Honor. You think this jury's deadlocked for for good? Yes, Your Honor. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to uh, thank you and excuse you from further service. We appreciate your service. This is one of the hardest working juries I've ever seen. It ended in a hung jury, but the majority seemed to believe that Jeff did it, that Jeff was guilty. But the sticking point seemed to be this this story that the prosecutor was, was telling. And it made sense in some ways, but it left room for reasonable doubt. They just couldn't connect all the dots for the jury. This uh, case is still unresolved. We restart the case in 447-950, State versus Jeffrey Croteen. Is the state gonna retry this case? So they tried him again, and they used the same prosecutors. And Croteen hired new lawyers, and they took another crack at it. And again, it ended in a hung jury, but they were closer this time. It was down to two holdouts. They weren't budging. So another mistrial. They gave their best shot a second time, and they couldn't convince 12 jurors. So you, you wonder, you know, why go through it a third time? So the third trial, I joined the prosecution team. 
The third trial was difficult in that these witnesses had all basically testified two prior times. You lost the effect, the emotion, you, you lost the drama of the story being told from the witness stand because this was their third time to testify. There were a number of witnesses who came into trial number three that I described them as uh, 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 Hail Mary passes. I believe Mr. Twining claimed that he had seen Mrs. Croteen in the parking lot of the hotel. An attorney called me while I was out working in my yard. He said, could you tell me what you've seen? Melvin Twining and his friend decided to get up at 2.30 in the morning and they walked outside the front doors of the hotel where the party was going on. And when they walked outside that door, Melvin said that he saw something suspicious in a parking lot. I had seen a guy that looked like he was relieving himself up by the passenger side front tire of a Camry in the parking lot. Then I had thought for a brief second, I saw three people and then, no, just two. And I thought it looked like somebody was struggling to get luggage into a car, into a back seat of, of the passenger side. It was like a struggle. And then I realized the guy was not relieving himself. He looked more like a lookout. It didn't seem right. And that late at night, why are they struggling with luggage in the car? Well, I didn't even know then the connection, but later that was the connection because that's what she drove, was a Tope Camry. Now, we didn't know that until the third trial. That was discovered through, through my investigation and locating witnesses. I think, just like Mel Twining said, was that two people accosted her in a parking lot. They kidnapped her, stuffed her in the back of that car. I think there was a huge struggle. What happened was they shot her and then they drove that car to the RTA station. I believe that those are the events that probably happened between 2.30 and 6.45 in the morning. In the third trial, the jury found him not guilty of the crime of murder, and Mr. Croteen was set free on that day. I always uh, look back on it and, and just say to myself, did we give the jury everything that they needed to know? I think it was that there were a few items of evidence that did not rise to the level of being proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That with the fact that uh, the Croteen children were advocates for their father. Then you can say that reasonable people would look at that and say, I'm not quite convinced that uh, the state met its burden of proof. Well, Jeff got his innocence in the eye of the law but he lost everything else. He lost his reputation. He lost the relationship with his children. I think mostly because of the affair. But Jeff Croteen is kind of like the O.J. Simpson of Northeast Ohio. You know, the guy that everybody knows had some part in what happened, got away with it, but he's still interested in trying to find the real killer, in his words, at least until he died. I believe that Ramona's killer is still out there. There's cold case units. They could follow up on this. There's new DNA technology. They could try to take a look at all the evidence and stuff once again. This is one case file that I've kept, and I usually don't keep case files, but this is one case that's been open, it's been on my mind for a long time. I believe in my heart that, that Jeff Croteen had to have known and had to have had a hand in what happened to Ramona Croteen that night. I don't think Ramona went home that night. I think she was murdered in the parking lot of the Clarion Hotel by Jeff's accomplice. I think Jeff met him at the rapid station and then gave him a ride home and then went home himself. I believe if the police wanted to, they could solve this case in the next month. They have blood 
from underneath the handle of the car that's not Ramona's. The profile's never been pulled. They could do genetic genealogy. In my opinion, they could have the answer next month. Wouldn't it be weird if it wasn't Jeff Crotein that he had nothing to do with it? He just looked so guilty. If it wasn't him, you know, that would be an astounding end to the story. People in the Cleveland area continue to debate whether Jeff Crotein got away with murder or if Ramona Crotein was the victim of a robbery gone wrong and her killer is still out there. But there's one haunting aspect of this case that cannot be debated. Ramona Crotein never got justice. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another great episode called from the Court TV archives from our original production, Someone They Knew, with Tamron Hall. You can see episodes of the show weeknights at 7 p.m. on Court TV, with new episodes premiering every Sunday at 9 p.m. And you can also watch the show on demand on the Court TV website by clicking on the link in the show notes. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for downloading. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.